neighbors, I think we can all acknowledge that we are used to having our special blankets. And now it feels like someone has taken our blanket away. Even though we know that we are loved, that we are held, that we are known, we can feel like we aren't. We can feel anxious. And we feel like that we are all in this together, and this season has only heightened maybe how we feel. And so this morning, we're going to look at how a follower of Jesus, who has his own anxieties, shows us how to handle anxiety, how to have spiritual stability in a turbulent world. But before we do that, let me just pray over us these words of Scripture. I've been praying for you this week, church, Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Hear God's word, and then we'll pray. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that we feel that our paths are not straight. There's a roadblock. We look at the path before us and we feel that at times it is not passable. These roadblocks that are in our way are preventing us from what we desire, from what we want. And so we are left with mental stress, emotional stress, relational stress. As someone has once coined it, Lord, we have heartaches and we have headaches. God, we feel the headaches We feel the heartaches, but at times, Lord, we have not felt you. God, we confess that our headaches and our heartaches come from imagining that you have abandoned us instead of controlling our thoughts and reminding our thoughts of your commitment to us. God, we feel that this world is untethered. It doesn't matter what news station that we turn to, Lord, We can listen to either side, and we sense fear, we sense panic, we sense anger. There is intensity brewing. God, we just have to confess that at times, we get sucked into that, and we watch the world's news just like unbelievers do. God, we confess that at times, we watch the news as if this world is all there is as if these things are the only true things, as if the virus or this election is the only story, untethered from the fact that you are in control. God, have mercy on us. Renew our thinking. God, we are asking for straight pass from your word to our world. And so, God, we just want to, as a church, we want to renounce the lie that God is absent. We renounce the lie that God has abandoned us. We renounce the lie that God is dead. But our heartaches and our headaches aren't just for our homeland. Our our heartaches and our headaches are even what fill our home. God, I confess that it is where I feel the most responsibility. That is where I feel the most anxiety. It's where I feel responsible for someone else an income, a house, a a children's health, a spiritual well-being. And so, God, we come before you with 
places and areas where we feel responsible. And so we're praying for our elementary kids, our middle school students, our high school students. Lord, these children and teachers that they have have already had a long year. God, just the stress of remembering which day to go to school and which day to stay home. God, when these little ones are afraid, may they trust you. God, when they feel the uncertainty, give them your peace. God, when their little hearts and minds are, can't find their, their regular rhythm and they are tired and cranky, God, we pray that you would give them rest. We lift up our eyes to the hills from whence comes our help. Our help comes from a God who never tires, a God who is never cranky, a God who never grows impatient, a God who never knows uncertainty, but is certainty himself. God, thank you that you don't waste a pandemic to teach our children to trust you. God, we also want to pray for our college students. So good to see so many of them throughout the weekend, to talk to them via text. Students in Colorado, Pennsylvania, in our own state, Michigan. Thank you for bringing Josh Newhook home this weekend. Emily Allen, Christian Davis. God, we just thank you for seeing their faces. I'm sure others as well. But perhaps there is not a place out there that is more hyper-vigilant when it comes to covid Lord, these students are having to wash their hands multiple times, wear face masks, get COVID testing multiple times a month. All these things, Lord, are just continuing. God, we ask that you'd have mercy on these college students. We don't ask just for their physical safety, God. We ask for mercy that in this vigilant time when they are so focused on this virus, God, that they would be aware of and protect themselves from the most deadly of viruses sin. God, we pray that our college students, Lord, that they would be sober, that they would be vigilant, that they would be sober and vigilant towards the enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour them. God, many of them are not having the year they wanted. Many of them are not at the college they wanted, and so protect them from doubting your goodness. Protect them from believing the lie that you don't care or that you can't control. God, many of them are wanting to do well as freshmen in their classes. We pray that you'd protect them from thinking a tweed jacket and a PhD could not be the undoing of their souls as lies are marketed as truth. May our students remember the faith that was passed down to them. May they remember who they've received it from and the outcome of their life. Lord, we beg of you not to lose a single student to the lies of this world. Sanctify them in your truth. God, just this week, have felt more of a burden for our singles. And so we lift up to you, our singles, that in this quarantine life, that it has forced them to stare at unfulfilled desires and unfulfilled dreams. Lord, they are isolated, sometimes even despairing. Heard one lady just despairing that if she gets sick, she doesn't know of anyone that could take care of her. 
God, for many singles and widows, the house is too empty. The apartment is too empty. Well, on the other hand, we have moms and dads who look around and say, the house is too full. Everyone's home. Everyone's working from home. God, we just see that our enemy is willing to drive or use anything to drive a wedge between us and you. And so we just pray for the moms and dads that have full houses right now, that uh, have kids that are out of a routine, that have moms and dads that are working from home and trying to teach school, for the children that are getting kicked off the internet and school portals that shut down, for fights that begin at 9.30 in the morning. Oh Lord, we bring our parents to you. Every stress, may they turn as an address to you. Lord, we just want to say as a church family, we want to lean not on our own understanding. We want to acknowledge you in all of our ways, not acknowledge you in the sense of a head nod. No, we want to truly acknowledge you by defiantly believing that our anxieties are not the truest thing about ourselves. That this world might be unrecognizable, but that your steadfast love, your perfect strength, your sovereign plan are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, give us eyes to recognize that. So in our frustration and in our discomfort, we defiantly believe as a faith family that there is a storehouse of reasons to give thanks and praise. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Lord, you are good. The Lord is good for those who wait on him. We wait for the Lord. Our soul waits, and in your word we hope. More than a watchman waits for the morning, Lord, we wait for you. And so we gather now waiting to see your glory, waiting to hear from Holy Scriptures what you would have for our life. So open our eyes and ears to see wonders from your law, that we would delight in it and walk in your path, that you would direct us with your eyes and that we would know your presence. The Lord is near. In Christ's name, amen. So we've been looking at Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. And uh, we remind ourselves that this whole passage is kind of started off in verse 1 with the theme of stability. And that what comes to take our stability is often our anxiety, our anxiety that creeps in. And so we have to remind ourselves that even though we can't do everything, that that doesn't mean that you can't do anything. Even though you can't do everything to control your situation, to try to create peace, in fact, usually when we try to create peace, we usually create anxiety, right? But even though you can't do everything, doesn't mean that you can't do anything. I think this is where it would be helpful to remind you of the Apostle Paul, and maybe you'd appreciate him, taking him down from that pedestal of the super apostle. The Apostle Paul is someone who has felt anxiety, If you flip back to chapter 2, verses 25 and 28, we learn that the Apostle Paul is anxious for someone that he felt responsibility for. Epaphroditus, his co-worker, is sick. Paul is anxious what would happen to his friend. And anxiety is that expression that you and I have that we want everything to be at peace. 
If you're new to Christianity and understanding what does it mean to be a Christian, you need to know that we were created to be at peace with God. We were created to be at peace with our world, with each other, even with ourselves. But since the fall, since there has been sin, anxiety has been woven into our human fabric, and not even the latest CRISPR gene editing tool can snip it out. How do you handle anxiety? I think you could consider the ways that we typically go after it when you think about how you can how you console your children when their security blanket is missing. I want to kind of paint a picture for you this morning of that. I think the first way that I typically go about trying to console my child is that I try to distract them. I learned that from my mom. My mom used to come along to my brother, and he was pouting in the morning, and she got up behind him and said that she had these magic puppet strings, and that she could get him to smile, and she'd do these silly games, and she'd go over the top, and eventually my brother would, would smile, right? And so we distract children with the simple game of peekaboo, that in the moment when they're so upset, we begin to hide our face and pop out and make silly faces, and our kids go, oh, I, I've forgotten about what I was stressed about. And oftentimes we try to distract ourselves. If distraction doesn't work, there's also that you know, ancient practice of dulling their minds through entertainment. You pop in the CD, you pop in the DVD, you put on a show, and we just dull their minds to deal with anxiety. Or we try to deny reality. This one's fun. We try to pretend that everything is hunky-dory. You're fine. Come on, let's go. Everything's awesome. Yeah, we're going to be okay. Yeah, this is great. Aren't you glad? And they're like, what are we doing? Sure, I'm happy. Right? We just try to kind of just pump in optimism. I'm sure there's more than just those three ways. But we're trying to do all of those so that our child doesn't destroy reality by being antagonistic to everyone until they get the whole world to line up with their expectations. Well, it doesn't just apply to children, does it? I'm sure we can see that we have more of these immature tendencies than we would like to admit. And according to God's word, According to Ephesians 4.14, God does not want us to be infants. He says, no longer children tossed to and fro. God wants us to go from spiritual immaturity to grow to maturity in Christ. That's actually why Paul says here in Philippians 4.1, he wants them to stand firm. He wants them to have spiritual stability. Spiritual stability comes when you have that spiritual maturity to look at all of life. And so Paul sees the ministry of the Word. He sees his ministry as a pastor in Colossians 1.28. His whole purpose is to move the church from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. Here, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Spiritual immaturity, right, results in that spiritual instability. Paul wants us to grow and to mature for spiritual stability in our lives. And this week, as we're looking at verses 8 and 9 specifically, we see that Paul says, if you want to grow to maturity... To go from the immature life on how you handle problems to the mature life, it begins with what you think about. Here's the sermon in a sentence. Cognition changes conduct. Cognition changes conduct. Let's look at Philippians 4, 8 through 9. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and what you have heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Our cognition changes our conduct. We have to be taught. Children have to be taught, don't they? To go from immaturity to maturity, children have to be taught. Here are some very simple things. We're going to just review Philippians 4, 1 through 6, to see how we get here. But I think at the very beginning, children have to even be taught that they are not the only human beings in the world. I know it sounds simple, But children need to know that because children start off incredibly self-centered, don't they? They can cry and just mom and dad come running, right? I mean, that's just how they start off. We see kids, even in toddler phase, right, in a room full of toys, they are upset because they don't have the toy that they want to play with. They know what they want and they want it now. But it's not just physical babies that are self-centered. I think Paul begins to show us that we can be spiritual babies. And spiritually immature people are incredibly self-centered. Verse 2, Yodia and Syntyche, Paul has to tell them, you got to agree in the Lord, right? When you're so self-absorbed, self-absorption does not create unity. It creates division. Friends, the gospel work stops. Because no longer are you looking out there on how to serve others. You're beginning to look inward and navel gaze. How could she just overlook me? How could she not recognize me? How could she not thank me? How could I only get this position? I don't know what the fight was. We don't know what it is. Man, they got completely turned in. As they got turned in, notice Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Man, as you get self-absorbed, have you noticed that your joy dries up? Because your circumstances don't line up. Right? Next, verse 5, their reasonableness is out the window. Because self-absorbed people, spiritually immature, self-absorbed people, don't have the ability to humbly, patiently endure injustice, disgrace, maltreatment, without resorting back in hatred or malice. So it's no surprise that as we come to verse 8, that we recognize another hallmark of spiritual immaturity. Babies lack discernment. That should be pretty obvious, right? Babies, when it comes to food, right? You have to give your children food. Here you go, open up, this is what you're going to eat. Because if not, what do kids do? They grab anything and they are willing to do what? Put it right in the mouth. No, you can't eat it. That's poison. Ick. Oh, no, no, don't do that. The net result is that babies are unstable. They're not steady. They can barely take a couple steps without toppling over. And it's most likely because their attention span is about 10 seconds or less, if even 10 nanoseconds, right? Ooh, I like that. Oh, no, I want that over here. They laugh, they cry, they're happy, they're bored. What does that mean spiritually? I feel like going to church. I don't feel like going to church this morning. I'm really going to change that. But then never following through. I need God. 
I'm bored with God. You know, working through Philippians and book by book, you know, I think I can discern for myself what I need. I'm going to become a YouTube Christian where I just find my sermon that I think I need today because I need to feel better by listening to this. True story. But James 1.8 says, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's no spiritual stability if we stay as spiritually immature infants. Now, the reason I wanted to kind of make you feel all of that this morning is because I'm going to ask you, based upon God's word, to do some hard things. This is a hard sermon. It really is. And in order to want you to think and to act, to ponder and to practice, your initial reaction is, I don't want to do that. That's just too hard. But I think we can argue that based upon the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, whoever wrote that argued this way, you don't want to stay spiritually immature, do you? You don't want to see a grown man going to Pizza Hut drinking out of a baby bottle, do you? I mean, that's just not attractive. And so you want to grow. You don't want to stay unstable. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, right? Don't you want to remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Spiritual maturity for spiritual stability requires us to do the hard work. And so I'm going to ask you this morning right now, don't put up with spiritual immaturity in your life any longer. The excuses that we give ourselves, the cliches that we live by, oh, I'm going to do better next time. I'm not that bad. I think I got this under control. Do they really hold up? And so here's the first point. Do the hard work. Intentionally ponder the good stuff. Number one, and do the hard work. Intentionally ponder the good stuff. You see in verse 8 that there is a command after these long lists of virtues, and the command is think about these things. The word there for think is the word that we get our word logic from. And so Paul says to evaluate, to consider, to ponder, to appraise, to calculate, to reckon. All of those words, depending upon the context, kind of carry that weight. And Paul is saying you have to do the hard work. This is a rigorous approach to the Christian life. Your mind as a Christian needs to be shepherded. Your mind needs to be cultivated. It is something that you have to control. That's why Paul takes issue with what we think about. Keeping the context in mind, right, verses 6 and 7, he is commanding them to flee from worry. Well, what is worry? It is when your mind is on things that you can't control, and it begins to control your mind. We worry about things that are out of our control, and it begins to control our mind, and Paul says, no, you need to control your thoughts. Do the hard work. Think about it this way. I wish it was winter. It's coming here soon enough, but your mind is a snowball. Kids, draw a big old snowball, right? Your mind is a snowball, and when you pick up snow to make a snowball, you have to shape it, don't you? You can't just pick up a little bit of snow and go, I mean, that's not going to throw well, okay? It's not going to hit some, it's not going to turn into a snowman. Sorry, got to use the right analogy there, okay? You, you got to shape it. You got to pack it. You got to roll the snowball down the right hill in the right way. Expert snowman makers, you know that you just can't roll it and let it get too deep in the snow, right? What happens as you push that snowball as it gets bigger and heavier and it wants to go deeper into the snow? What happens? Picks up grass, the leaves you didn't rake, the twigs, the the grass clippings. 
and it doesn't add strength to the snowball. It actually wants to, to fall apart. And so when we allow our minds as a snowball to kind of pick up that junk, right, we, we need to shape it. We need to control where it goes, directing it here, shaping it there, adding a little more here, shaving that off, deleting that from our lives there. And you know what when that happens? You do that hard work, you're going to get momentum. There's a story about college kids out in Oregon who made an 800-pound snowmobile. And they're rolling it down a hill. That's about the only way you can get to an 800-pound snowball. But guess what happens as momentum began to take over? They lost control of this 800-pound snowball. And it rolled right into their dorm, destroying this metal wall, breaking the drywall on the other side, just dent. Of course, they apologized. We're sorry. We didn't think that would happen. We're in college to get an education. You know, I don't know how all that worked, right? But as a snowball can run off course, so can our minds if we don't shepherd it, cultivate it, shape it, direct it. And an immature spiritual infant gets bossed around by their thoughts. But our thoughts are your employees. They work for you. You don't work for them. Let me just use an obvious example here of gluttony. It impacts all of us. But does your belly work for you, or do you work for your belly? Your belly says, I'm hungry. It's time to eat. And if you just listen to that, whenever you feel that way, right, that would be an immature response. Your belly's not the boss. You're the boss of your belly. You say, no, I am going to wait. I'm going to practice portion control, whatever it might be. That's maturity. It's effort, and it's not just true about your belly. We're not going to pick on any certain sin. It's true for our emotions. It's true for our thought life, that you can be led around by them, that you need to remind yourself that you are in charge of your thoughts. And so I ask you this morning, faith family, are you in control of your thoughts? Well, how do you do that? Paul says spiritual mature, a spiritual stable Christian is one who can control their thoughts along these eight virtues. We have this long list here, and they're pretty self-explanatory. And the whole purpose is so that you can engage every area of life. Paul believes that becoming a Christian is getting an education so that you can engage with every area of life. Did you notice the word whatever? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Why would he repeat that word? I kind of never noticed it before. But it's not just, oh, it's whatever, so ignore it. That's not the tone. What he's really saying is this is a big deal because it protects a Christian as you try to engage culture that has all of these things that are going to try to get into your brain and eventually affect your conduct. Paul knows that you have to live in the world, and that is the biggest hurdle for Christians. How are we to live in the world but not be of it? And Paul says this word, whatever, really protects you from one ditch over here and one ditch on this side. Here's the first one. It protects you from being absorbed in culture. Absorbed in culture. The word whatever means that you have to think about whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And so, faith family, you cannot allow the control center of your mind, the operating system cannot be blind acceptance. Proverbs 1 tells us not to listen to the naive voice. 
You just can't just consume and sit back passively and blindly accept everything that comes your way. Being absorbed into the culture. Well, the naive voice from Proverbs 1 wants to say, oh, avoid right and wrong. Let's keep everything always open for discussion, never quite landing. The naive person never wants to say, that's dangerous. What's the big deal? But a godly man will not go as far as he may, lest he go further than he should. And for too many of us, we believe that our minds are passive. But the Bible says you're responsible for your thoughts. No more mindlessness in church. No more lazy worship. We can't just be absorbed and consume and swallow everything the culture wants to tell us. But here's the other ditch that Christians take when engaging the world, and that is to avoid. Just avoid the world. They take this verse to mean only think about Christian things. Only listen to Christian music. Only watch Christian movies like Noah and Exodus. That was kind of funny. <laughs> like Noah and Exodus. Christian movies. If you think that, that Noah and Exodus are Christian movies because it has the Christian storyline, I think that's where this verse is going. You need to think. Just because Hollywood puts out the Bible story, there might be some gaps between what Hollywood says happened and what the Bible says, or even the point of it. Yeah, go for it. Hollywood's not very accurate. Even the passion, right? What's the point of all of this? Doesn't say why. Yeah, you can see gory details, but does it ever actually say why? Things to think about. So sometimes we have not a blind acceptance, but other times we behave as Christians a blind rejection. Chuck it all. But here, Christians should say we should be able to see whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, excellent, or worthy of praise. And so what Paul is saying here, be on the hunt in creation to see these things out there in the world. Be on the hunt in humanity. See what you can recognize to engage it, but you still have to have a filter. And so in order to avoid these traps, you need to let your mind be completely bathed in the authority of God's word. You have to do the rigorous job of getting God's word in you. R. Kent Hughes is known for saying this. I think it's a great quote. You can't be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. Truth changes your mind. And it, and it goes like this. Let me see if I can find this, this handkerchief here. Okay, so we're going to take this white handkerchief. This is your mind. Okay, and this is where, how you saturate into God's word. We'll see if this works. Haven't practiced. But let's just put a bunch of red dye in there. That's, that's God's word. Got to save some for second service if it works, right? Okay, and, and what you do when the first time you read God's word is you just kind of you, you, you put it in there. But it comes out, and, it, and it, is, it as, it is, a, is it as red as this? What do you have to keep doing? You have to just keep, what, taking it out, applying more, applying more, soaking it, soaking it. And I don't think that you even recognize the changes until your whole mind is so saturated that you see your world through the color of his word. 
but it happens over time. There's a cumulative momentum effect. Second, do the hard work of deliberately practicing the good life. We intentionally ponder the good stuff, but now we need to deliberately practice the good life. Paul cannot conceive of just a mental-only religion, a head-knowledge religion, a religion that concerns itself with only facts and not life change. Actually, in the Greek, verses 8 and 9 are one sentence. They go together. I wanted to divide these into two sermons. It's a little longer because it's just, it's just one verse. Okay, It, it goes together because Paul can't separate that cognition changes our conduct. And so look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul holds out that our cognition changes our conduct. Consider a familiar verse, Psalms 119.11. Psalms 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Most of us probably know it in the King James, but what does the Bible say? Take the best thing, God's word. Put it in the best place, your heart, your mind, okay? Ruminate on it for the best reason, that I might not sin against you. There's a direct connection with what the psalmist here says I think about in order that I put it into my heart so that I live out that I wouldn't sin against God. Our truth changes our mind. It's how we fight sin. How do you fight sin? Truth. With the truth. Sin is no match for truth. Truth and sin go head to head. Sin rolls over every time. Which is why sin never wants to fight with truth. Where does sin try to have the fight? Your experiences and your emotions. Just think about it. I don't feel. I want this. There's very simple things that are going on in this church. Very simple. I've been hurt by church. That's how I feel. It's been my experience. Therefore, I don't want to what? Commit to a church. It's not because we don't think through the Bible and see that all the Christians in the Bible that we see are committed to a local church. That that's just kind of in there. We can prove it. But, but sin comes along and says, no, let's fight with experience and your emotions. And so we have to wage war against truth. That would just be one example. There's many others that are going on in church. I think of Peter. Peter, who got to see the truth, revealed to him that Jesus is the Christ. Remember that? You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, upon that rock, I will, I will build this church. Upon that truth, I will build this, this church. And then the very next sentence, Peter learns that Christ is going to the cross. And Peter says, no, Lord, you're not going to go there. Because Peter's beginning to what? Just think emotionally. That's loss. He thinks experientially. That, that's injustice. Not, not for you, Lord. And then Christ turns and looks at Peter. And we know the first part. Get behind me, Satan. But then he says this. Your mind is set on earthly things. It's Peter's mind that led to his actions, and Christ wants him to think, consider, 
Cognition changes your conduct, but it's not as easy as it first appears. I don't know if you read, heard this sermon, you just think, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm going to think about these six or eight virtues. Anyone else overwhelmed when you see a passage with eight virtues? You're like, I'm not even going to do one well this week. Okay, so I kind of wanted to paint a picture for you of that spiritual mature person that wants to go after this because it does look intimidating if you just make your list this week. On Monday, I'm going to practice truth, and on Tuesday, I'm going to practice honorable. I mean, just like that. Okay, this is going to take some time. But Paul keeps the big picture in mind because he says that all of this happens in a discipleship relationship. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Here's the point. Paul says that there is no growing to spiritual maturity just by working on yourself as an individual. There's no growing to spiritual maturity just by working on yourself as an individual. Why is that so important? Why is it so critical about our faith? Here's the point. Faith is built upon faithfulness. Faith is on a blind leap. Faith moves. Faith acts. We take a step of faith, but it's all based upon prior faithfulness. And here's the problem. We feel anxiety because we've never gone this way before. Right? God and I have never been down this path together. And now we've encountered this roadblock. Well, faith family, how does a brother and sister help you out in this? Well, it reminds you that you're not the first believer in God to walk this path. It might be the first time for you, but it's not the first time for God's people to have done this. And so one of the best ways to lagizomai, to think, to consider, to evaluate, is to invite other people into your life, dead or alive, who can show you and help you consider there's more to your story than what you can see. That God is a God with a history of covenant faithfulness. That this faith has been passed down from one generation to the next. That you are not being asked to do this alone. So step back. Consider your great God. Step in. Link arms with one another. And on that basis, step out in faith. If you're here this morning and you say, man, God and I, we don't go that far back. This is the first time that I've had to trust him. Or maybe you've been in church a long time, but until COVID, you've been able to control most of your life. You, don't, you have never had to lean your full weight on God. I ask you, who's a person that you can look to in this church on the basis of their past faithfulness that would actually help you in your present step of faith? And if you don't have a person in mind, I would encourage you to join a small group. It's that sharing of God's word together, talking out life, praying together that lets you say, oh, that person's been through a job loss, that person's been through a health issue, and look at how they walk with the Lord. What you've seen and heard and seen in me practice these things. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and all of that just sounds too antiquated, It sounds like a stroll back down Mayberry Lane. You mean people care about each other, they want to help each other, and they believe these things about God? They believe truth, and there's love, and there's purity. People don't just believe that anymore, right? If you want peace today, all the books talk about go after the technique. There is no book out there on the market that wants to say, think about the truth for peace, Think about what is pure for peace. Think about what is lovely for peace. Think for peace. No, everyone says, oh, you got to do this technique. Well, if that's you, 
just want to ask you to consider that you still have to live according to some story because it is just too difficult to live in this world without a story. And so if you deny the biblical story, you have to find your own or invent one and see if this represents your point of view. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if I'm representing you and you can do it better, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to hear how I can make sure I'm representing you well. But what I just did, I'm going to take Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 and flip it around to how the world tells you to live. This is the world story. Trust in yourself. You have all the resources you need within you. Lean solely on your own understanding because no one else can understand what you need. In all your ways, acknowledge yourself. You have the power to make your path straight. Be wise in your own eyes. Fear whatever gods or goddess that you prefer. And do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt someone. Who just happens to agree with you on what hurt is? It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. That's the secular story. And here's my challenge to you, non-Christian. If all the resources you have to get through life are within you, you know what that means? It means that when you are at wit's end, it is the end of hope. Because if all the resources that you have to get through this turbulent life are within you, then when you are at wit's end, all of your resources are gone too, which means wit's end is the end of hope. But for a Christian, when we find ourselves at wit's end, hope is just the beginning. Because God promises the God of peace will be with you. That's how the verse ends. God will be with you. It has never been true that your greatest hope is you. It has never been true that all the resources that you need are the ones inside of you. It has always been true that the resource that you need the most is God. And God is asking, do you trust me? So friend, which story do you want to live out? That the only hope that you have is in you? Or that long before you were born, God? And that that God created you? That God holds you in your arms. You're already loved, already saved. And he now says to you, ponder and practice the truth for spiritual stability. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this challenge from your word to ponder and to practice the truth. We need each other for this. We ask that we would so saturate our minds with your words and put in that rigorous effort, knowing that it would lead to a life that would save ourselves and those that hear us. We thank you for the grace that enables us to do this. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand and sing with me? He will hold me fast. faith will fail Christ will hold me fast when the tempter who would prevail he will hold me fast
I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me Read a benediction for you and remind you to uh, exit out the side doors. Yeah, either side would be great. We can fellowship outside, but receive this benediction from God's word. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. He will hold you fast. God bless.